Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you have never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church you connect with, you belong here. Right now, Collective is fully online, so if you like the podcast, make sure to check us out on Facebook at My Collective Church on Sunday mornings at 9.25 a.m. for Collective Online. We would love for you to join us. A lot of big things are going on at Collective, so make sure not to miss a week this fall as we will be sharing about how God is moving in our church and what is next for Collective. Now, let's get into today's message. So I want to start off today by talking about our upcoming plans for our Christmas Eve services. For the past few months, I've been working with my staff, our management team, and a few key leaders to try and figure out how to do Christmas Eve services in person in our building. But earlier this week, we got the bad news that our landlords denied our request because the space will not be ready and construction crews will still be working around the clock until Christmas so we can officially move in in January. And this hurts me in my soul because we miss you all so much. But we are trusting God that this is what is best for our community right now. And even though we don't fully understand what God is doing, he has never steered our church wrong. So we're going to keep following his lead. So with that being said, we are going to be hosting two identical online Christmas Eve services. Christmas Eve Eve at 7 p.m. and Christmas Eve at 4 p.m. And we know that it's going to feel a little different watching Christmas Eve online. So we want to encourage you to set aside time now and make the most of it. Wear ugly Christmas sweaters or matching pajamas if that's your thing. Make some hot chocolate. Put a fire in your fireplace or put a fake fire on your computer screen. Invite your friends and family and neighbors over to join us online as we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Because even though we can't be together, I promise you that it's still going to be a wonderful service that's full of hope. There will be extra worship. We'll close with the song, O Holy Night, which is slowly becoming a collective tradition. We will also have a big announcement about how collective is making an impact on the community. So don't miss it. Join us on the 23rd at 7 p.m. or the 24th at 4 p.m. Or you can watch both if you just want more Jesus and more collective in your life. We love and miss you all. And while this season seems to be lasting forever, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and we know that we will be together again soon. So let's jump into today's teaching. So my daughter and I have an ongoing debate that happens every time we are running errands together. It started one day while we were listening to her Disney playlist on Spotify. Yes, we listen to Disney songs every time we're in the car. No, this is not how I imagined my life would be, but I still love it. So a few months ago, while we were driving, a song from The Little Mermaid came on. It was the one where the main villain, Ursula, sings, Poor Unfortunate Souls. And after it played the song, Mother's Knows Best, from Tangled, which is sang by the villain, the evil mother Gothel. Now, Disney fans, hit the thumbs up emoji if you know the songs that I'm talking about. And that's when Elise from the back seat started the debate that we're still having today. She asked me, who is meaner? Ursula or Mother Gothel. Now, she thinks it's Ursula because she tricks Eric, steals Ariel's voice, and tries to sink the ship that her friends and family are on, blah, blah, blah. But I think it's Mother Gothel because she's manipulative. She tries to act like she's a hero and loving and kind, but is actually 
probably a psychopath. And of course, Elise is wrong and I am right. But as we were debating our choices and how we came to the conclusions, she asked another great question. Why do movies always have a bad guy? Why do they always have to have a villain? And I know why she's asking this. Because Elise would be just as happy watching movies if there wasn't a villain. Like, she would totally watch a movie based on Frozen where they just did normal things like cooking and cleaning and doing dishes. So I tried to explain to her that every good story has a villain. Someone who creates drama. Someone who you can compare to other people so you can see just how good the heroes are. And in the best stories... The villain is someone who you can kind of relate to, even though you might strive to be like the heroes. And as we continue our Christmas series today, that's exactly who I want to talk about. I want to talk about the villain and the story of the birth of Jesus. So we started this series last week called All I Want for Christmas. And we're reading through the story of the birth of Jesus, but instead of skipping over the parts of the story that don't make us feel good or taking away the parts that ruin that hallmarky vibe that we tend to prefer, we are leaning into the fact that this story is full of real people dealing with real problems who are just like us. And just like us, we often get to Christmas and realize that we want something different than what we currently have. And we hope that the magic of Christmas somehow solves all of our problems. But it doesn't work that way. So we're going through the story of Jesus' birth, and we're asking ourselves, what can we learn that helps us deal with our real problems, our real wants, our real desires during this Christmas season? And I asked you last week to approach this story through a new lens, one that's different than what you're probably used to, the lens of how do I relate to this person? And today, we're going to use that lens when approaching the villain in the story, King Herod. Now, if you grew up going to church, you know that it's not typical for churches to spend time talking about King Herod as more than a passing reference because he isn't cheery. He isn't a hero. He isn't someone that you want to be like. But Collective is not a typical church. So that's who we're going to talk about today. And that's who we're going to learn from the villain in the story about the birth of Jesus. So let's check it out in Matthew 2. This is how it starts. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. Now let's talk about King Herod for a second. King Herod was often called Herod the Great, and he was a king in Judea and ruled the territory with Roman approval from the emperor of Rome. So while Judea was an independent kingdom, it was under heavy Roman influence, and Herod came to power with Roman support. I guess you can kind of think of him as the mayor of a city or the governor of a state, where he has a decent amount of power, but he is still under the rule of someone else. And Herod was a very complicated ruler. There's actually a lot of good that he did. He was a prolific builder who renovated and expanded the reconstruction of the temple, the most holy site in Jerusalem. He planned and oversaw the building of palaces, fortresses, theaters, amphitheaters, harbors, and the entire city of Caesarea. He also helped save the ancient Olympic Games during a financial crisis. But Herod was also corrupt. He confiscated property belonging to those who he believed did not support his rule. 
So he would actually steal from the Jewish upper classes, which made him exceedingly rich and provided him with the funds to pay for the continued goodwill of his Roman overlord, Mark Antony. In other words, he stole from his own citizens so that he could pay for his role and his power, and then he used his power to oppress his people and steal more from them. Herod was also flat-out evil. In 29 BC, he executed his wife Miriam because he believed that she was cheating on him and that she was plotting to kill him. He also executed his sons Alexander and Aristobulus in 7 BC, as well as Antipater II in 4 BC. And he did this because he was afraid that his sons were plotting to kill him and to take over his throne. So Herod did a lot of good for the Jewish people by rebuilding the temple and creating a space for them to worship and be in community. But he also used his power to control and manipulate the citizens of Judea as well as his own family. So let's keep reading about him. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, CT is actually going to talk a little bit more about the wise men next week. But in the story of Jesus' birth, the wise men approach King Herod, and they ask him where they can find this new king. So think about this. They're asking the king who is currently on the throne and who has executed multiple people who he thought was trying to overthrow him to point the way to the person who they believe is going to take over the throne at some point. And this is really important. Jewish people had all heard the prophecies in the Old Testament that a new king was coming. And Herod had heard this as well because he claimed to be Jewish. And the prophecies stated that a king was going to be born as a child and would have legitimate claim to Israel's throne by virtue of his birth. He would be the king of the Jews. And while they expected a baby, what they didn't understand was that Jesus didn't come to be king on earth. He didn't come to rule people from a throne in a castle. But when Herod heard that a newborn king of the Jews had been born, he should have rejoiced. This was the Messiah. This was the person that all the Jewish people had been waiting for, the one that was sent to rescue them from from themselves, to rescue them from their sin. This was the greatest news they could have received. But King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. And disturbed is actually too weak of a translation. Herod was terrified. And he was terrified because he viewed this child as a mortal threat to his throne. So he called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. So then what they do is they quote the Old Testament, specifically Micah 5, and they say this, And you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people, Israel. So a king will be born in Judah, and he'll be a shepherd, but not someone who cares for sheep. He'll be someone who cares for people, someone who will guide, love, and have compassion for humanity. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared, 
Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Skipping ahead a few verses. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared, appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Now remember, Herod is a villain. When we read earlier that he wanted to find Jesus so he could worship him, he was lying. He had no intention of honoring the new king. He had no intention of relinquishing his position. He had no intention of losing control over his throne. So he sees Jesus as a threat and wants him dead. So Joseph and Mary head to Egypt to hide, and Herod continues to spiral. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and younger, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod goes off the rails and tries to hunt down every child under two. And thankfully, he fails, and he dies before anything bad happens to sweet little baby Jesus. Now, this is a part of the story of Jesus' birth that isn't included in nativity scenes. This is a part of the story that isn't really included in the claymation movies about Jesus' life. To be honest, this is a part of the story that we don't like. And it would have been really easy for us to skip this because we aren't like King Herod, right? And if we aren't like King Herod, how can I look at this part of the story and really ask, how do I relate to this person? Because I don't. I don't relate. I'm not a king. I'm not a corrupt ruler. I have no interest in killing Jesus. I'm not like Herod. But aren't we, though? I mean, ignoring the king part and the destruction part, which I know are a big part of who he is, but if we take away those aspects of his life that we can't relate to, there's one big thing that we can absolutely understand. The need for control. We need control. We want control. Seriously. I mean, think about it. How uncomfortable are you when we are not in control? Right? Because that's really what he struggled with. Herod wants control. He wants authority. He wants to dictate the outcomes of the situations that he's in, right? In this story, he feels threatened. He's afraid to lose power. He's afraid to lose his position, his safety, his name. He is afraid to lose control. So how about now? How do I relate to this person? And I believe if you were being honest with yourself, you would say that you understand those feelings, you want control. I want control. We want control when it comes to our family, our career, our life. So maybe this Christmas season you're thinking, all I want for Christmas is control or maybe power or maybe just a say in what's going on. I mean, I'm not going to lie. The thing I struggle with the most during this whole pandemic is the lack of control I have in my own life with my own family, with this church, with my future. I don't like other people telling me what to do or the, uh, the idea that other people think they know what's best for me and my family or the fact that I don't know the outcomes and there's nothing I can do about that. 
And if you are being honest, you struggle with this too. Maybe it's control when it comes to your kids. You want to control what they do for fun, what classes they take, where they're going to go for college, who they're going to marry, how many grandkids they're going to bless you with. And you don't like the fact that as they get older, you're realizing that you lose more and more control every day. Or the fact that maybe someone or something else has a stronger influence on them than you. Maybe you want to control your spouse. You want to control who they talk to and spend their time with. Maybe you want to control what they do for work, how they handle their own schedule so that it has a minimal impact on you. Some of you want to control what your spouse believes and how involved they get in church. You want to control your finances. You, know, you want to be able to go into debt for whatever you deem important. Maybe a car, maybe a renovation on your house. But you also want to save money when you have extra. You want to have control of your money, and you don't like people, specifically your pastor, telling you that if you follow Jesus, trusting God with your finances and giving is an expectation in the Bible. It's a part of your faith. Some of you really want to control what people think about you. And social media is your greatest weapon. You get to show them the life you want them to see, filtered and edited. It took you 37 attempts to get the Christmas photo by the tree in your matching pajamas. You almost gave up one kid for adoption and just took the picture with your dog. It was a complete disaster, but you got the picture that everyone will admire. Hashtag blessed. Some of you want to control other people. You might not think you do, but you try to use guilt and shame to get others to think the same way that you do, to act the same way that you do. Respond to what is going in the world the way that you think is best. And I'm just being vulnerable here, but this is something I talk to my therapist about all the time. I struggle with the fact that I can't control everything and it drives me mad. I wanna be in control of what people think about me I want to control how my kids act when we're in public so as to not be embarrassed. I want to control how you respond to what I say on Sunday mornings so that you can be taking the next steps I know that you need to take in your life. If I could pick up a pen and check a box, if I could pick up your phone and do it on the app for you, I would. I want to control every aspect of our new building. How it looks, how it smells, how the sun hits it in the morning, how green the grass is outside, how much Mission barbecue I'll be able to smell from the parking lot once they open up. I want control. So while we may not respond the way Herod did by attempting to kill Jesus, we can absolutely 100% relate to wanting to have control in every aspect of our lives. But here's the thing. You can't. Every time you seek out full control, you will fail. In fact, studies done at Berkeley have shown that human beings have a deep-seated desire for certainty and control. And the reason we fight for control in our lives is because we believe that the more control we have, the more we are able to shape the outcomes and events to our liking. People also believe that the more control they have, the less vulnerable that they have to be. But study after study shows that people who seek out control in their lives are less happy than those who don't. Do you know why? Because people who seek out control realize that they really can't control much of anything. And sure, you can control certain aspects of your life. 
You can control how you treat people. You can control your own growth as an individual. You can control your perspective and how you see things. You can control yourself and how you respond to the ups and downs of life. But you can't control everything. And ultimately, our desire to control is rooted in one thing, fear. When I look at all the different areas of my life that I try to control, and believe me when I tell you, I'm just preaching to myself right now. My desire to control is rooted in fear. Our desire to control is rooted in fear. And this was King Herod. While he could control how he responded to the news about the birth of Jesus, right, that was well within his control. What he really wanted was to control others. He wanted to control his social status. He wanted to control the outcomes of what was going on in his life because he was afraid to lose the throne. He was afraid to lose power. He was afraid to lose wealth. He was afraid to lose authority. He was afraid to lose control. But here's the problem. The more we try to be in control, the more we fear losing control. The more we fear losing control, the more we try to be in control. It's not easy. Because everything in culture tells us, you've got to make it happen. Right? It's up to me. I've got to get in there. I've got to be strong. I've got to manipulate it. I've got to make it happen or else. Our desire to control is rooted in fear. Fear of failure. Fear of pain. Fear of what other people will think. Fear of things not turning out the way we had hoped. But I think the biggest fear we have is that God won't be there for us. The reason we have a hard time letting go of control is because we are afraid that God doesn't actually care about us. That God won't really be there for you. That God doesn't really love you. And you are afraid that if you let go of control and trust God, he won't be there. And some of you have put this wall up and you've disguised it as, I don't believe that God exists. But here's what I really think is behind that. It's a fear that God doesn't care. And if you let go and trust him only to find out that God isn't real or God doesn't care, then your life will get worse. It'll fall apart. There won't be anyone there to pick you up. So what you do is you try to control as much as you can. But you don't need to be afraid. You can trust that he is with you and he loves you. And that isn't just a promise that I'm making to you today. It's a promise that Jesus makes. Check this out in Matthew 10. This is what Jesus says. What is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. What Jesus is saying is that sparrows are worth very little by the world's standards. Yet he cares enough about them to know when a single sparrow dies. And if he cares that much about a sparrow, imagine how much he loves you. Imagine how much he cares about you. Imagine how important you are to him. So you don't have to be afraid of letting go of control because God will not leave you behind because he loves you. And Jesus continues, 
if you cling to your life, right, if you fight for control over your own life, you will lose it. You will lose control. You, you will get exactly what you are afraid of. But if you give up your life for me, right, if you let God lead, if you let him take control, if you let him guide your life, your faith, your marriage, your career, your money, if you let God lead, you will find it. When you finally let, control, let go of control of your own life and let God be in control, that is when you will find real life. As Jesus says, life to the fullest. A life so much better than the one you're currently trying to control. So here's the truth. There is no one better in your life to be in control than Jesus. Your life is not better with you in control. Your life is not better with your parents in control. Your life is not better with your spouse in control. Your life is not better with your social media followers in control. Your life is not better with fear in control. Your life is better when Jesus, the good shepherd, is in control. Because when Jesus is in control, you don't have to be afraid. So for some of you, it's time to give up control and allow God to lead. It's time for you to put your faith in him rather than yourself or other people. It's time to get baptized. And baptism symbolizes the death of your old life and the beginning of a new one. One where Jesus is at the helm. So to take that step, just check the baptism box on the connection card on, online or on the app. Now, for those of you who have already taken that step but are still holding on, remember why you originally put your faith in Jesus and let go. And look how far he has taken you. You don't need to fight to get back to control. Instead, you need to keep letting go day after day. So let me ask you a question. What is it that you're trying to control that God wants you to let go of. It could be a relationship. It could be a marriage. It could be that child that you're aching for. It could be that bad diagnosis. It could be that financial weight that's crushing you. It could be the hurt because of something that you've lost. It could be an addiction that you just can't seem to beat. It could be that guilt that you're carrying from something that you did that you can't undo. What are you too afraid to let go of? Because Jesus is saying it's time to let go. And God is offering you something so much better than control. He is offering you peace. He's saying, I'm in control. I got this. I got you. You do not have to worry about things that are outside of your grasp. Jesus will take care of you. All we have to do is trust him. Let's pray. God, I think, um, to be honest, this, this is just a hard topic to, to think about and to talk about and to wrestle with because um, we are in such a time of unknown right now. Uh, and honestly, God, if we, we heard this, you know, 12 months ago, 16 months ago, um, we'd be more willing to let go because uh, we have a better look on life and we kind of know the outcomes. 
But God, right now, as we're in this season of, of not knowing what's next and not knowing what's safe and um, not knowing what's the best thing to do, a lot of us are trying to grasp for more and more control every single day. But God, the truth is, and we know this, it's not getting us anywhere. In fact, it just creates more pain and disappointment, more fear, and more desire for control. So God, I pray um, that this story, and specifically this person of Herod, can be an example of what it looks like when we try so hard to have control that we just keep spiraling. And God, I, I pray that this can be a warning for us so that we be, can begin to let go and trust you with our relationships, trust you with our marriage, trust you with our finances, trust you with our faith, trust you with our problems and our addictions and our brokenness instead of trying to control it ourselves. God, help us let go this week. Help us trust you this week. God, help us be reminded of how valuable you believe we are, as messy and broken as we are, God. You value us, and we don't understand why. But God, help us be reminded of that every single day as we continue to let go of control, continue to trust you, and continue to move toward you. God, we love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.